Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now, here are your hosts of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, Andrew Olson and Roy Jones. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew Olson with the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Roy Jones, uh, who's joining us from Florida today. And I'm really excited because we have a, a very special guest today. We're here with Seth Perlman. So Seth is the senior partner at Perlman & Perlman uh, LLP, and, and they're a leading nonprofit law firm. Uh, Seth has received numerous awards throughout his career for distinguished service to the philanthropic sector. He's also the author of a two-volume treatise on fundraising regulation entitled Cutting Through the Regulatory Maze, a State-by-State Handbook on State Charitable Solicitation Compliance, which is the bane of my personal existence as a direct response fundraiser, so I'm glad that guys like Seth exist. Seth's background, he, he also serves as general and special counsel for a number of different nonprofit organizations and uh, industry trade groups, including AFP and the Direct Marketing uh, Fundraising Association. And uh, Seth, you've spent some, somewhere near 30 years uh, working as legal counsel to nonprofit organizations. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Actually, it's uh, now going on about 35 years, I'm happy to say. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I, I'm really excited because one of the things that we're going to talk about today is the CARES Act, the, the federal stimulus bill that worked its way through Congress recently to, to help energize and stimulate the economy, both in the commercial sector, but also, as I think is, is appropriate and, and urgently needed, in the nonprofit sector. Before we jump into that, could you take just a quick second, give our listeners a little bit more detail about who you are and, and what your firm does? Well, I'm an attorney by trading, and uh, I am the senior partner of a, a law firm that focuses its practice in the area of philanthropy. Uh, we define philanthropy somewhat broadly to include traditional charitable organizations, charitable philanthropy, but also what we're seeing today, which is a sort of crossover to the for-profit world in terms of uh, public benefit corporations, social impact investing, and uh, sort of ESG investing for large private foundations and family offices who are looking to put their money to work uh, to create some social impact. We are a boutique law firm in that we do specialize in philanthropy. We have offices in New York, DC, and Arizona. Uh, We have a large contingent of folks who focus in the uh, solicitation compliance area. So we do a lot of work for Nonprofit organizations, both C3s, C4s, C19s, but also uh, fundraisers, fundraising consultants, professional fundraisers. And we have quite a few large companies who are involved in commercial co-venture activities that also have to worry about compliance issues. Beyond that, we are general counsel to a number of uh, different types of nonprofits, everything from international universities to small mental health agencies. Uh, so we get involved in a lot of different areas, and it's, a, it's, it's sort of, I like to characterize it as a general practice within a specialty, because our clients have multiple needs. And we can't cover everything, but we do have a, a wide network of folks that we can reach out to to help. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. Roy and I have been having conversations about the CARES Act and about the impact across the sector. And we're, we're just grateful that, that you're here to, to lend your expertise and your voice to this conversation. So with that, I'd love to jump in and start uh, going through some, some of the, 
the bigger questions that, that we'd like to send your way. I think the, the first one that I think our listeners are going to be interested in is if you could talk a little bit about the eligibility requirements for nonprofit organizations to be able to access this stimulus package. Like what, what are those limitations? Who's eligible? Who's not? Well, this is uh, a topic of conversation for just about everybody these days, both the nonprofit world and the for-profit world. As we all know, uh, Congress passed a uh, $2 trillion stimulus package, a part of which includes the CARES Act, and the CARES Act has within it a couple of different programs. Of those programs, there are three primary programs that apply to nonprofit organizations or are available for nonprofit organizations to take advantage of. The primary one is uh, the Paycheck Protection uh, Program. This is an emergency small business association loan program. The second is the uh, Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, or also known as the EIDL, the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. You'll hear those acronyms thrown around a lot these days. And then there's a third program for larger organizations with uh, employees above, uh, with more than 500 employees, but less than 10,000. There are very few nonprofits that have more than 10,000 employees. Most of those are universities and hospitals, uh, and there are special programs for them as well. But the three primary programs for the nonprofit world uh, that most organizations need to focus on are one, the PPP, two, the EIDL, and if there are larger organizations, some of these mid-sized loan programs um, that are not being administered through the Small Business Administration, but directly through the federal government, the Department of Treasury. These programs, the PPP in particular, which is the one that most people are interested in, uh, is available to all 501c3 organizations and C19 organizations. Now, C19s are generally veterans organizations. Both of those 501c categories are able to receive tax-deductible contributions included in the C3 organizations. It's a pretty broad category, but faith-based organizations are also included in there as well as churches. However, any organization that wants to take advantage of uh, the PPP must have been in existence as of February 15th, 2020. If you want to take advantage of the EIDL, you must have been uh, in existence since January 31st, 2020. I suppose the reason being that Congress doesn't want to see newly formed organizations being created just to take advantage of these programs. That makes sense. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, faith-based organizations, and that's one that I know a lot of our listeners have questions about because there's always this, you know, this concern that if, if a faith-based organization or, or particularly even a church accepts any kind of money from the government, that there might be strings attached that would keep them from ministering to, to their community in the way that they see as appropriate. Can you talk a little bit about any kind of limitations around that? Well, I think it's an interesting question. A lot of uh, churches and faith-based organizations have been focusing on this. Essentially, there are no strings attached per se. However, and especially this is especially applicable to churches, if you're going to apply for a loan under the PPP, you're more than likely going to have to produce financial statements, make them available both to the bank through whom you're applying and ultimately to uh, the SBA. Many churches don't publish their financial statements, so this is going to be a unique requirement for them. Uh, And they're going to have to be willing to make this information available to both their own, their bank, and also to governmental authorities. 
in addition, as part of the PPP, and we can get into this later about exactly how this works, there's a loan forgiveness provision, which allows uh, borrowers to have all or a portion of the loans that they take forgiven under the PPP, but it will require proof that the loan funds were used to, uh, in a particular way. Most specifically, that greater than 75% of those funds were used to pay payroll costs. This is going to have to be proven to the bank and ultimately to the SBA in order to receive forgiveness. So the transparency that most churches are not used to having to provide could be a bit of a game changer, especially for churches. Now, that being said, other faith-based organizations typically make their finances available, uh, certainly especially if they file in 990, which churches are not required to do. So they're used to, to putting this information together. And in fact, if they're of a certain size, they may even have audits and those audits can be publicly available. But again, for churches, it's going to be a, a slightly different ballgame and they're going to have to be prepared to open their books. Yeah, that is an interesting one because I, I know at least the churches that I've interacted with from a fundraising perspective, that's something that I don't think any of them are doing right now. And I think many would be, be concerned about uh, let, letting anyone in to see that, let alone letting the government in. Have you, been, have you heard anything from any big churches or faith-based organizations about um, you know, their perspective on this yet? Yeah, we work with a number of churches, and they are concerned uh, about having to do this. However, they do realize that this is an unusually generous program and that they are interested in taking advantage and may need to take advantage, especially if their congregants aren't able to support them in the way that they're used to. This essentially, under the PPP, they can get up to two and a half times their monthly payroll as a forgivable loan. It's pretty difficult to walk away from that kind of money, especially for larger churches that may have uh, substantial payrolls. Yeah, for sure. That's significant. So let's talk for a second. You mentioned C3s, C19s, churches. I didn't hear you say anything about C6 advocacy organizations or, or other types of organizations. So are those completely excluded from, from these benefit programs? So uh, C4 organizations, C6s, C7s, other types of C organizations, other than the C3s and the C19s, the two groups that are allowed to receive tax deductible contributions, are not eligible okay. for uh, the PPP. However, they can access uh, emergency grants under the EIDL. Okay. And those emergency grants are up uh, are a $10,000 immediate infusion. So a C4 organization or a C6 or a C7 can apply for an emergency grant uh, to cover expenses. And th those are, are fairly easy to get. They also are entitled to receive loans under the IIDL, excuse me, EIDL, the acronyms are starting to fall around in my head here, tumble around. But um, they also are able to receive a loan of up to $2 million from the EIDL. Now, the interest rate on those loans is uh, pretty much capped at 2.75%. So this is low-cost money for these organizations. And are those loans, would an organization have to use those for payroll only? Or is that for, for any purposes? They have to show that they, they have to use the money for either payroll, 
sick leave, uh, an increase in costs due to disrupted supply chains, or debt service. Okay, so it's essentially the limitations. What I hear Congress saying there is, don't use this to just build an off-book endowment and hold on to money. Is that, is that well, how you'd not. interpret it? Yeah, you're going to have to show that you're going to use it for, for those causes. I mean, essentially, the government has put this program in place to make sure that they can, uh, organizations can retain workers. There's two concerns. One is that the, the unemployment insurance costs are going to be borne by the government one way or the other, and it's going to be much more difficult to get the economy back on track if workers have come off the books and are no longer involved in the organization. Uh, so the feeling of Congress was we are better off giving the money to the nonprofits, to the for-profits, to keep their people uh, employed so that when they do have an opportunity to start back up, it will be easier and less expensive for them. And we won't have to be administering such a large role of unemployed workers. That being said, I think there was something like 6.6 .6 million people have applied for unemployment insurance in the last few weeks. The numbers are pretty staggering. We're looking at 10 million unemployed at this point. Yeah, it's huge. I was, uh, you know, I live here in uh, Minnesota and I was just listening to Minnesota Public Radio before we got on the call. And they were saying that the, the number of, of people who joined the unemployment rolls here in Minnesota last week is twice the number that joined in all of 2019 which is just staggering to think about. And then to, you know, to extend that nationally, it's crazy. Well, the entire hospitality industry is shut down. So uh, yeah. right there is a huge number of folks. And, uh, you know, most companies are furloughing uh, a percentage of their workers. Part of these bills is to try to prevent that from happening or, or at least uh, scaling to the point where it's going to be difficult for these companies to bring folks back on. So they want to keep most workers connected to their existing employers, if at all possible. They'll figure they're paying for it one way or the other, either through unemployment insurance, which may have to be reimbursed at some level uh, by the companies, or by giving money directly through these, this loan program, a portion of which is forgivable. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a good idea what they've done in the CARES Act is a a good way to try to keep the economy back on track and to stimulate it when this virus has passed. But the problem that we're seeing is that the SBA is just flooded with requests and really having a hard time getting on top of this, especially since they have to work through banks around the PPP loans to provide uh, loan documentation to, to intake loan recipients to check their credentials most banks, and this is important for your listeners to know, have limited their involvement with these loan programs to just their primary customers. So if you're interested in acquiring a PPP loan especially, you need to be talking to your, the bank that you usually work with. Oh, that's really interesting. So, so if I hear you correctly, they're, they're not accepting new customers to deal with these kind of loans. They're, they're saying, you know, if, if you're in already, we'll help you, but otherwise stay with who you, who you bank with today. Is that, is that correct? That's essentially correct. Now, uh, there are a couple of very large banks like Bank of America, I understand, that may be taking outside companies. Uh, but for the most part, the general rule is work with your existing bank. <clears throat> Anecdotally, we've also come across some information recently that indicates that the smaller banks seem to be able to process these applications 
uh, more quickly than some of the larger banks. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, so, so if you're working with a mid or small bank, I, I would definitely you know, speak to your existing bank. You know, I don't, I don't know if it's an appropriate correlation to draw, but this feels to me a little bit like the rollout of the Affordable Cares Act during the Obama administration, where, you know, there were very high hopes on the front end, everyone was excited, it launched, and then it sort of sputtered until it was able to, to get its feet and, and, you know, eventually launch appropriately and launch well. Do you feel like that's an appropriate correlation? Well, I think it is. I think that it was a massive program undertaken under the Affordable Care Act. They had to build a whole infrastructure around it. They had a lot of false starts. They made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. It took them a while to get on their feet. They don't have that luxury this time. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a limited program. It ends June 30th. If you don't get into the queue, uh, you may not be able to get your loans. Keeping in mind, there's a limited amount of money here. The government ha has given $347 billion towards this CARE Act loan program. It's my understanding that a lot of that money has already been accounted for. What's undoubtedly going to have to happen is that Congress is going to have to allocate more money to this program. And there's also some, there's already some talk about allocating uh, a significant amount more, in fact, possibly doubling the size of the program. Wow. So one other area of, of this program that, that I want to get your uh, <coughs> put on is the, the charitable giving incentive that was baked into it. Can you talk with us a little bit about that? And I, I'm particularly, I'm, I'm interested to get your opinion on it as it pertains to this particular stimulus bill. But then also, you know, as a fundraiser, I'm sort of, you know, on the edge of my seat thinking, is this something that might just become enshrined in law and that they, they, let, they let go further beyond the current time period, which is, it looks like to me is just 2020. What, what's, your, what's your gut on that? What are you hearing in the industry? Yeah, that's interesting. Nobody quite knows how long this is going to last, but there are some really interesting charitable giving incentives that all organizations should really be paying attention to. The first is that there's a new above-the-line deduction of $300 for any contributions made in 2020. So that applies whether you itemize or don't itemize. It's an above-the-line deduction. So in other words, the $300, the first $300 you give directly reduces your income. <clears throat> so that will probably help with small donors. But I think even more importantly, there is a, uh, a lift in the annual cap on contributions from 60% of adjusted gross income to 100% uh, of adjusted gross income for itemizers. So for somebody who's looking to make large donations, this is the time to do it. They can take a full 100% of that donation in the first year rather than trying to carry it over or possibly losing some of that deduction if they can't carry it over from... Uh, they can't expense it for more than five years, which is the carryover limit. So uh, this is a really interesting proposition, and I think that anybody who's in the industry should be aware of this and should be having conversations with some of their major donors or even some of the folks who might be on their uh, planned giving programs. But rather than waiting, folks could make larger gifts now that are completely deductible. And again, those deductions can carry over for a number of years. So, so that's a really interesting perspective, Seth. I, I had never even thought about talking to a planned gift donor about moving some of that money into into current year to take advantage mm -hmm. of the of that tax incentive. That's really smart. 
I know you can't read the tea leaves, but something like this that gets put into place at a time like this, do you, I don't know if there's history for it or not, but is there any way for us to even guesstimate whether or not something like this could get carried over into multiple years? I think there's going to be some pressure to carry it over into multiple years, at least the next couple of years. But ultimately, this $2 trillion plus trillion that the government is printing is going to have to get paid back. And yeah. so there's going to be, in a, in a few years, and I'm not quite sure when that's going to be, there's going to be significant pressure to increase taxes to try to pay for this bill. Otherwise, we'll be sitting on this multi, multi-trillion dollar deficit for many, many years to come. It's going to have to be some effort to pay it back down. Just the, the carrying costs in that debt uh, are going to weigh down the economy. So I would suspect, and of course I cannot read the tea leaves, but I would think that this these new incentives might last for a couple of years, but ultimately they're going to be pulled back. That's a, that's a sobering perspective on that multiple trillion dollars uh, of government investment needing to be paid back. And I I hear you there, and, and I think that you know more, more organizations and more individuals need to be thinking about that as they talk about and think about their long-term strategic planning and, and what that cost is going to look like over time versus just how do we get through today's crisis, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing to think about, and this is something that major fundraisers might want to have in terms of conversations with their prospective donors, is that, look, as part of having to pay all this money back that we're borrowing, I would anticipate that the state tax rates are going to go up as well. Uh, and the, the credit for state taxes is going to decrease. Uh, I don't see that we're going to be in a position in years to come to allow for an unlimited state tax deduction. And I think that that amount will start to decrease. And I think the amount of the tax will start to increase as well. So this might be a golden opportunity for folks who were planning on making testamentary gifts, large testamentary gifts, to think about making some of those gifts now. And I think that's a conversation that donors can think about having. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, major gifts folks can think about having with their donors. That's really smart. So if I could pivot us just for a couple quick seconds, I know that you have a, another call you've got to get to, but I, I did want to talk just a little bit about what you and I talked about before we began recording. You had just been on an industry conference call and shared a few uh, few things with me that you're hearing across the industry. Talk a little bit about, if you would, what you're hearing related to the, the Postal Service and the concerns that, that people are raising about their, their liquidity and sustainability right now. Right, so uh, the Postal Service uh, at the moment is experiencing a significant decrease in mail volume. Uh, probably a lot of that is coming from commercial advertising mail. My understanding, last I heard, heard earlier today, was that there's been a 30% decrease in mail volume. To me, that represents a bit of an historic opportunity for nonprofits, especially those involved in direct mail. This is probably a great time to be mailing. Uh, there's less mail coming to people's mailboxes. People are sitting home, sort of anxiously awaiting to get their mail each day. It's one of the few pieces of entertainment that they get. And the visibility for mail going out to the public is going to be, in my estimation, much higher. I think people will pay much more attention to uh, solicitations that they get in the mail. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to think about increasing your donor mailings at least. Uh, it may be a more difficult time to think about doing cold mailing or acquisition mailing just because of the costs. There's another issue as well, and that is 
if you're doing large acquisition campaigns, how well are the caching facilities working? And so we did have a conversation around that, and it appears that most caging facilities are saying that they are essential businesses and they are in full operation. I think that might be a bit of a false narrative or a bit of a spin, <laughs> um, but certainly that's what they're out there saying. In my estimation, there is some concern about uh, whether caging operations can handle large volumes of mail at the current moment. But nevertheless, I still think it's an historic opportunity for folks in the direct mail. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I've talked to two caging operations in the last week, and, and I did hear that, you know, while they're open, one has gone down to not a skeleton crew, but, but close to that. The other says that they're at full capacity, but we, we are noticing in their results that their volumes are a lot lower per day than they were, say, two or three months ago. So I think there's definitely something to be said for, for the concern around that. Something else you shared um, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that uh, you're hearing a lot of organizations switching to business reply mail envelopes, paid BREs, instead of uh, asking donors to put a stamp on their mail. Talk about what you heard around that. Yeah, so uh, you know, anecdotally, uh, some of the folks who were on this call, a lot of them are uh, fundraising consultants in the mail field, the direct mail field, uh, had said that they are uh, seeing a uh, uptick in organizations using BREs as compared to CREs. The BRE being the business reply envelopes that are pre uh, pre stamped. Uh, I think people are uh, less likely to want to go to the post office. They're worried about social distancing. Uh, if they have a, a BRE, they can return the response that they're more likely to do that. They can simply stick it in the post box and have the mailman pick it up or just drop it in a postal box. So I think that uh, that's probably going to help. Uh, I also think that what you're going to see is people receiving direct mail and then responding electronically. And uh, there, there was uh, an indication that the electronic responses were much higher and donations coming through websites and other uh, electronic uh, uh, media methodologies was definitely increasing. Great. So there's one other thing that you mentioned when we were speaking earlier and you were talking about donor advice on DAFs. I know that early on there was some concern about, you know, from some organizations about whether or not they should be even soliciting DAF gifts right now, but what are you hearing in the industry? Right. So I think there's a significant pressure on the DAFs. There is $130 billion sitting in donor advised funds in this country right now. It's a major uh, reserve or, or uh, reservoir of charitable dollars that uh, are sitting in all these different DAF organizations. There is a somewhere near a 10% distribution rate. In fact, uh, Fidelity uh, Gift Fund reported that in the first quarter of 2020, they made $100 million in donations, which was a record for them. Hmm. But I think there's going to be increased pressure on the DAFs and the DAF sponsors, well, the sponsors as, as well as the advisors, the people who put the money into the DAFs, to start to, to utilize those funds, to put that money to work because there's a, a great need and everybody recognizes it. So I think we'll start to see more money coming out of the DAFs. I think there, this needs to be a, a concerted effort on behalf of the sector to get the DAFs to, to loosen up those purse strings and get the advisors to start thinking about making contributions now because the money is needed now. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I, I can't remember where I heard it, but I, I feel like I heard the statistic that in addition to seeing things like like you reported with Fidelity, that the average gift of DAFs being distributed right now is something like 20 or 30% higher than what they're seeing from the last couple of years. Have you heard anything related to that? Yeah, so there's some anecdotal discussions about that as well, that the, the, the size of gifts coming out of DAFs is also higher. Uh, yeah. And that was, be, that was pre-pandemic. So oh, okay. We can see some increase an even greater increase now in the second quarter. And I think that what might have been happening in the first quarter is that the markets were at historic highs. These DAS were doing well financially. Of course, a lot of these DAS now are, are you know, they're invested. They're invested usually with the, the sponsoring, uh, the DAS sponsor through some kind of portfolio program. And so they're all seeing a downturn in their values as well. So you're going to have these sort of competing uh, situations going on where there's a pressure to loosen up the money because it's needed, society's hurting, uh, organizations need the money, but at the same time, people looking at these death balances and saying, hey, it just went down 18 20%. I don't feel like I should be giving away more when the market is down. So uh, there needs to be some some convincing on the part of the philanthropic sector that despite the downturn in the market, this money is needed and it's needed now. Yeah. You know, I, before the pandemic hit, I was having conversations with a couple of consultants and we were all speculating that at some point in the, you know, maybe near future, Congress would need to act in some way to force a higher level of distribution out of DAFs in order to, to really put that money to work in the charitable sector. I feel like coming out of something like this, it, it's almost inevitable that someone in, in Congress will, will end up targeting DAFs to, to ensure that, that they're not just, you know, quote unquote, slush funds sitting on the side, you know, without having distribution while people need it. Do, do you share that perspective or, or am I off? No, I, I think there's going to be some pressure, but understand who you're up against here. Um, <laughs> Fair point. You know, DAFs are sitting within the largest financial institutions in the country. Uh, they have huge cadres of lobbyists and significant influence over uh, their representatives. So it's going to be difficult to pass any significant DAF legislation. But I think that the, these commercial DAF companies, Fidelity, Schwab, Bank of America, all the rest, are going to feel some pressure here. Uh, and I think they're going to encourage their advisors. They typically, I mean, you need to understand that they don't necessarily make these decisions on their own. Now, they have the discretion to do so, but they you know, generally listen to their advisors, but they can exert some pressure on the advisors and try to push out some of these programs. They can also start to put policies in place where distributions have to be made. But they're gonna be very careful about doing that because they're competing with one another for these funds. And if, they, if their restrictions are greater than their competitors. They may lose business to some of the competitors. I mean, it is a, at its core, there's certainly a, a large commercial component to this with most of the deaths. It's not true so much in the community trust and with some of the commercial deaths, but for the ones that are tied to large financial institutions, it's definitely true. And those are the ones that have uh, the largest share of the money at this time. That makes a lot of sense. It's prudent guidance, and, and I hear you on the cadre of lobbyists that uh, exist in the financial sector. I, I can imagine that that's a formidable force, so it makes good sense. 
anything else that you're hearing related to what's going on right now that, that our listeners should know about? Yeah, there's a couple of other things I think that the folks should be aware of. Uh, it's important. So for those of you who read The Agitator, you may be familiar with this. It's Roger Craver's publication. Uh, he re- recently reported that in the UK, there's been a 40% decrease in cancellations among monthly givers. That, to me, is significant, and it, it, it says to uh, the nonprofit sector that has month, a monthly giving program is pay attention to that program. Pay attention to those donors. Reach out to them now. Start talking to them. Try to prevent uh, the UK experience being repeated here in the U.S. These are very important donors. Uh, these are the folks who consistently support your organization. I'm sure everybody on this podcast recognize how important they are. And also, they are your low-cost donors. It's the folks that cost the least to keep going. And uh, you don't have to constantly mail them or call them or try to reach them in some other way. Um, so those folks, we need to be paying attention to those folks in particular right now. In addition, it's a, also a a great time to get on the phone. Everybody's sitting home, start calling your donors, even if you don't ask them for money. I mean, Andrew, you and I were talking about this. Just let them know you're out there. Uh, just call in to check on them. Everybody's sitting at home, everybody's anxious. People don't necessarily mind getting phone calls right now. If you have uh, major gift folks, get them on the phone with your, your major donors. Uh, just have them talk to them. I think this is a, a great opportunity to to solidify some of those relationships. And again, potentially have those conversations around the historic giving opportunity that exists. Yeah, for sure. Well, Seth, this has been great. Uh, you've given us a ton to think about and help clarify a lot of things around the CARES Act and, and other issues that are going on right now. I really appreciate you being here with us. Before I let you go, if anybody is interested in following up with you, has questions, wants to talk about how their organization or their company might uh, benefit from a relationship with your firm, What's the best way for people to reach you? Uh, I think the best way is to reach out by email at this point. I can be reached at uh, Seth at uh, Perlman and Perlman.com. It's P-E-R-L-M-A-N-A-N-D Perlman again.com. Seth at Perlman and Perlman.com. You can also visit our website and get to, to us that way at uh, www.perlmanandperlman.com. Uh, wow. Happy to talk to anybody. We're really trying our best. We have been busy trying to get out information to the sector and do what we can. We're as invested in this sector as anybody. Well, I I greatly appreciate it. We're going to blast this out. We've got about 35,000 folks who download this podcast regularly. So excited to get this information out. And uh, thank you again for sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. I appreciate it. Take care, Ray. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Brought to you exclusively by Newport One. Newport One can make a difference in your fundraising so that you can change the world. You can always reach us at podcast at newportone.com. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.